You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordleone, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. It seems like a long time since Obergefell and the U.S. Supreme Court, a very different court than we have today, deciding, I think, on rather spurious grounds that our nation needed, in fact, our Constitution required same-sex marriage nationally. And with one decision, Obergefell, they gave us same-sex marriage everywhere, and it's legal. Now, There were a lot of people warning at the time what the consequences of that decision would be. And lo and behold, a lot of it has come true. In fact, more has come true than people even anticipated. Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time to talk about the social and political consequences of same-sex marriage. Matthew Smith joins us. He's founder and editor of Compact Magazine, author of a column for First Things titled How Gay Marriage Changed America. Matthew, welcome. Todd, thanks for having me. How do you respond to those who say that the U.S. Supreme Court announced same-sex marriage back in Obergefell as a constitutional right, and the sky didn't fall? Well, I'm looking out my window and I see it's still up. In ways that many of us fail to anticipate, I would say especially many defenders of same-sex marriage fail to anticipate, gay marriage changed America. It did so not just in creating a new way to marry a new conception of marriage, In some ways, it was just a ratification of those changes, but it also changed the nature of American institutions. What I mean by that is that declaring marriage as something that could be a union of a man and a man, as well as a man and a woman, meant that people who took the opposite view, people who opposed gay marriage, suddenly they were defined as bigots. Suddenly, they were no longer acceptable, not just on the faculties of Ivy League universities, but increasingly in corporate contexts where you needed to fly the rainbow banner. Increasingly, in things like police departments, there was recently a case of a policeman in Georgia who was placed on administrative leave after writing on Facebook that he affirmed the biblical view of marriage. So institutions were changed by the removal of those religious voices, and that had far-reaching effects going well beyond the issue of gay marriage. Why does gay marriage have critics on the left as well as the right? Well, you know, we're most familiar with socially conservative opponents of gay marriage who have pointed out that it runs counter to the biblical vision of marriage. It runs counter to the classic understanding of natural law. It runs counter to even just the most kind of simple apprehension of biology. Those are conservative arguments. The the left-wing argument against gay marriage has always been that it's too conservative. It really leads to a confining of a queer desire that should lead to the breakdown of all institutions. So from the get-go, there were radical queer left-wing opponents of gay marriage who saw it as a perverse attempt to confine queer desire into a very conventional bourgeois institution. You say that the legal status of same-sex marriage has never been more secure. Why do you say that? Well, 
Gay marriage was imposed by judicial fiat in the Obergefell ruling authored by Anthony Kennedy. Since then, gay marriage has been protected by the Respect for Marriage Act, passed into law by Congress and signed by Joe Biden. So now there's not just a kind of idea that gay marriage is constitutionally guaranteed, an understanding that can be reversed by a future court. There's actually a law on the books to which courts are going to have to uh, defer. How did Obergefell restructure the American elite? Great question. So as I mentioned, all of a sudden religious voices are less welcome in elite contexts, and then not just in elite contexts, but actually in kind of non-elite institutions like your local police force. All of a sudden, religious voices are taken out. And what happens then is that the entire range of opinion, of acceptable opinion, shifts suddenly to the left. People who were once the most conservative voice in the room are no longer in the room. And then people who thought, well, I'm a moderate, I'm a centrist, I'm a good liberal, all of a sudden, they're the most right-wing person in the room, and it makes them very uncomfortable, and so they tend to shift their opinions left. So we've seen a lot of things happen since gay marriage was decided in 2015. We've seen the rise of the trans movement. We've seen drag queen story hours. We've also seen a very novel and aggressive approach to issues like race and even sex through Me Too, and all of these things are signs of an increasing progressive dominance of our important institutions. And that dominance was greatly enabled and greatly furthered by the national recognition of gay marriage. You say that gay marriage was the first triumph of cancel culture, and it seems like ancient history, but take us back to California's Prop 8. Tell us that history and how that cancel culture tactic was employed all across the spectrum. Absolutely. So it was not that long ago that California overwhelmingly affirmed that marriage can take place only between a man and a woman. And it's worth keeping this in mind whenever we see opinion polls. Those opinion polls before Prop 8 and before Obergefell more broadly ended up not counting for much. Public opinion can be very malleable. But when Prop 8 was enacted, there was a widespread effort by activists who supported gay marriage to shame, harm, and destroy the reputations of people who had backed Prop 8. So I discuss my essay for first things, a website called 8maps.com. 8maps.com used publicly available data held by the government under financial disclosure laws to identify the places of business and addresses of people who had donated to Proposition 8. Obviously, throughout all of human history and every culture, if you take a controversial opinion, you can get blowback for it. Ostracism is an ancient practice. But what really changed was the the confluence of both an aggressive class of activists and new technologies like the internet, like social media, that made it possible for you to be shamed, shunned, defamed, not just by, say, your family, your former friends or your neighbors, but by anyone with an internet connection, including from the other side of the world. If you would, uh, you had mentioned this when we talked about the American elite, but going to American institutions, talk about the attrition of moderate, conservative, in some cases even liberal voices from American institutions. One of the things we've seen that's so remarkable uh, in recent years is the emergence of 
very brave and eloquent group of critics of what's now called wokeness. These are people generally from the center left, figures like Andrew Sullivan, who himself was the most prominent supporter of gay marriage. And he and many others like him have now emerged as critics of progressive ideas, uh, especially on transgenderism, but also on other topics like race. Now, this transformation, I think, goes to show the risk of joining a progressive movement. If you expel everyone to your right, suddenly you're the most right-wing person, and you're the most right-wing person in the context where being right-wing is considered a very bad thing. So people who once supported gay marriage, a cause that required the cancellation of religious and socially conservative Americans, now find themselves canceled because they're perceived as too right-wing. Matthew Smith is our guest. We're talking about the social and political consequences of same-sex marriage. When we return, he had mentioned commentator Andrew Sullivan. Why do those who now criticize cancel culture fail to connect the dots when it was cancel culture that got us gay marriage? Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Folks, the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference is filling up quickly. We already have 340 paid registrants. Attendance is limited to 500. This year's speaking lineup includes journalist Mark and Molly Hemingway, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordleone, Lutheran Church Missouri Senate President Matt Harrison, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Pastor Will Whedon of the Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Early bird registration is $140, and that expires this Wednesday. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. Making the case, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th, at Concordia University, Chicago. We're discussing the social and political consequences of same-sex marriage with Matthew Schmitz. Matthew, uh, you mentioned before the break Andrew Sullivan, and he rightly criticizes cancel culture. Why can't critics like him, why do they fail to connect the dots when it comes to how we got same-sex marriage through cancel culture? Well, I can't speak for Sullivan, But I do think that people like him who treasure uh, our civil liberties, who treasure our political traditions, and who seek a certain uh, kind of freedom and openness in American life, were far too optimistic about gay marriage. They were too readily accepting of the notion that gay marriage would act in a fundamentally conservative way. Sullivan always claimed that gay marriage would tame queerness. So in a way, he agreed with those radical critics of gay marriage that I just mentioned who feared that gay marriage would have a stultifying effect on gay and lesbian life. Sullivan agreed with them in a way, but he thought that was a good thing. But I think we've seen through the rise of things like transgenderism, through the rise of things like the notable normalization and universalization of drag, that it was never going to stop with gay marriage. In that vein, what did the LGBTQ activists do, rather than just taking a victory lap and going home, what did they do after Obergefell? 
Great question. I always like to mention, you know, there's a political activist, anti-communist activist named Midge Dector, uh, who I knew and once worked with. And once the Berlin Wall fell, she closed up this nonprofit she ran called the Committee for the Free World because she said, look, we've won, so we can go home. That didn't happen after Obergefell. So all these groups, like GLAD, like the Human Rights Campaign, moved on to the next issue. They moved on to uh, transgenderism, and uh, they continued to solicit donations. They continued to employ the important political contacts they made. Really, they had gained power, and it was inevitable that America would come to be more and more defined by their priorities. What is the new inclusion movement, that inclusion becomes kind of a self-evident goal? What is it? Well, that term, you know, we hear so much about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Inclusion is never a simple or one-way thing. Generally, to include, you have to exclude. For something to be in, something else has to be out. And the broad kind of logic of inclusion is this. You must support it, and if at any point you are seen as not supporting inclusion, then you are excluded. So in the name of inclusion, a new and particularly harsh form of exclusion is imposed, and again, not just on college campuses, but really across the board in American institutions. You say, I quote you, the queer would be normalized by the queering of the normal. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, you just mentioned inclusion. And if we're going to make everyone feel fully at home, you have to, in a way, not just say, look, it's fine to be a little different. It's fine to be strange. You have to actually go after all symbols of or representatives of normality and somehow subvert those, change those, make them actually weird themselves, only then will people who are seen as more marginal be fully at home and feel central. So you have to kind of marginalize what is central and centralize the marginal. You really have to do both. So what that means is that you know, for people who have you know, maybe an unusual way of expressing their gender or you know, kind of statistically unusual kind of sexual desires, for them to be you're made fully at home in our culture, fully at home in our society. We have to make sure that more normal human expressions, and here I'm just talking in the statistical sense. I'm not, I'm not trying to use normal morally in this moment. Those things have to be subverted. They have to be kind of made stranger. And so it's not enough to say, look, in America's urban centers, we're going to have, there's going to be a neighborhood where you can go and there'll be a drag show there if that's what you're into. No, drag really needs to be brought into every grade school in America. It has to be made just as all-American as apple pie. Otherwise, you're not really doing enough to make those people who might otherwise feel marginal feel fully at home. Can there be any neutrality under the progressive regime? I think that the aspiration for fair play, for treating people squarely, is a noble one. And up to a point, it's absolutely achievable. But we've really seen, I think, since Obergefell, since the moment that the White House was lit up with rainbow colors, that this new regime has no concern for neutrality. It's not interested in even trying to uphold that ideal. And so, but that's inevitably ended up calling forth movements that are themselves more skeptical 
of the claims of neutrality. So right now, we see a lot of people worried about various forms of illiberalism, both in our domestic politics and overseas. But a central form of that illiberalism, the thing that has done most to bring it to the heart of our national life, is the movement that brought us gay marriage and is bringing us many things in its wake. I'm curious if LGBTQ activists haven't, as you've mentioned, by pushing things into our schools, around our children, if they haven't overplayed their hand at risk, at least a pause or a counter-reaction. What are your thoughts? One can always hope, but I do think that whatever reaction we're seeing tends to accept a lot of the previous gains of the movement. So there's not today any movement that's seriously challenging gay marriage. So there's been a pretty solid victory. And right now, you're right, the logic of the movement about gay marriage is pushing it into much more unpopular territory. There have been certain signs that public opinion has become more negative toward LGBT causes. But I still think that tends to be a little bit more of an eddy while the main current is still moving in a progressive direction. What do you make of the online existence of Twitter groups like LGB No T? Right. Well, those groups really have served to highlight the internal contradictions in the progressive movement. And, and those contradictions exist not only between lesbians and gays who find that the trans movement in some ways works against their interests. A notable one is that often effeminate boys or tomboyish girls, some of whom would end up being lesbian or gay as they age, those people are being gender transitioned. So that's one way that the progressive movement shows these contradictions. But another is that you know something like feminism, which was you know a previous form of inclusion, a previous you know women need to be included more fully in our national life. We need Title IX, we need Title VII. But now, you know, women have really been discarded by this imperative of inclusion in some notable ways. Notably, in the boys' and girls' locker rooms, the boys winning swimming competitions and track meets. And so I think that, you know, often the grievances and real sufferings of a particular group of people are employed by this broader progressive movement to shatter something. But then those people are cast aside as soon as that is done. How has the radicalization of the left prompted a radicalization on the right? There are two ways. I alluded to one before. I do think that the projection of those rainbow colors on the White House, the increasing openness about saying you must conform to our beliefs or else you aren't allowed in this workplace, in this college, in this police department, that has made many on the right to wonder, well, why were we striving for neutrality? Why were we defending free speech and open debate, shouldn't we just have unembarrassedly defended our position when we had greater strength? It's caused those kinds of doubts on the intellectual plane. But I'd point to another factor that's at play. I mentioned that more religious conservative voices are being excluded from institutions. And this is really important for understanding the rise of what's often called the populist right. We know that there's this populist right. We hear about it through Trump, through other figures. And what's typical of populism is that it tends to be anti-institutional. It's very interested in calling into question elite authorities and institutional ways of proceeding. It's very, very mistrustful of the official narrative. 
that's inevitable. When you drive more religious conservative people from institutions, they're going to adopt a more anti-institutional stance. So people who have decried populism, people who see real problems in populism, I think that there are problems there. They need to be much, much more honest about the fact that they have created this situation by supporting a legal regime that absolutely drives religious and conservative people out of important institutions. Finally, some are concerned that post-Obergefell, the inevitable legalization of other forms of marriage, in particular polyamory, are next. Do you see that, or do you think that the institution of marriage itself is now irrelevant to the LGBT community? Yeah, I think that's that's not going to be the first frontier. I mean, one, one thing that's just really important to acknowledge is that marriage has become less important. Many of you are Americans are married. Americans who get married are married later in life. So possibly we'll see that. But the main thing we have to understand is that while kind of arguing over whether or not we should change the definition of marriage, we've lived through an era that has really seen marriage become inaccessible to the majority of Americans. And that's one of the profoundest tragedies of our time. Matthew Smits is founder and editor of Compact Magazine and author of the column for First Things titled How Gay Marriage Changed America. You'll find links to his column and to Compact Magazine at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Matthew, thanks. Thank you. Dr. John Bombaro joins us on the other side of the break. It's part two of a series with him on preaching the end times. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cares deeply for those who protect our nation. Are you or a loved one currently serving? Ministry to the Armed Forces would like to help. We provide devotional literature to encourage faith. Send your mailing address to lcmschaps at lcms.org or call us at 314-996-1337. Those in uniform are comforted with Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. Listen to what you want, when you want. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Do you know the fastest growing religious group in the United States? Is it Roman Catholics? Nope. It's not Protestants either. Rather, it's those who mark none on religion's preference surveys. They don't belong to any particular denomination. They still believe in some sort of spiritual being and reality, but they don't believe and don't claim adherence to any particular religious group. 
The March issue of The Lutheran Witness picks up the question of the nuns. To learn more, visit witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.